You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. Good morning, everybody. If you'd like to come and find your seats, uh, it's really good to see you. Uh, I'll add my welcome to that of Peters and Linda's. Uh, my name's Al. I'm the senior pastor or lead elder, however you want to frame that. Um, that's, that's me. That's my role here. It's great to have you with us at City Church this morning. If you're a guest, I hope you've enjoyed yourself. If you wouldn't think of yourself as a Christian, it's also really good to have you here. Um, amazingly, you may feel, well, I'm not sure if I should really go to a church. Listen, you're really welcome. Like, we'd love to get to know you. We'd love to hear maybe some of the things that make Christianity hard for you. So please come and talk to us. Uh, it would be great to meet you. Um, I have to start this morning with an apology, public service announcement. Um, Rob wants to apologize on behalf of all the intro team because the coffee was lukewarm. <laughs> you know, you win some, you lose some, don't you, City Church? I mean, what are you going to do? So uh, a new machine is being bought because the machine is, probably came out of the ark at some point. Um, so a new coffee machine will be purchased at some point. So we, that's the first world problems, isn't it, honestly? So we can have hot coffee on Sunday morning. There's going to be a brown envelope, isn't there, under my door this week. <laughs> Alan, we're leaving. We're disgruntled. The coffee was not hot. <laughs> Please don't be that person. And don't expect a reply, even if it is you. Um, okay, I think, was that all I had to mention, Rob? I think that's probably it, yeah. Okay. Um, from now until the end of uh, November, so up until Advent, basically, we are in a series, a trip through a, a, a collection of psalms within the psalms that is called the Psalms of Ascent. And uh, last week, if you were here, uh, we kind of kicked off in our All Together meeting with a look at Psalm 121, uh, a psalm that begins with an individual psalmist saying, uh, talking about lifting his eyes to the hills. Where, do, where does my help come from? And we talked about the fact that it doesn't come from the hills at all. It comes from the God who made the hills, and that's far more important and far more impressive. Uh, this collection of psalms was a bit like an ancient Israelite playlist for uh, a road trip up to Jerusalem. Three times a year, the Israelites took a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship, and the psalms of ascent, some or all or however many they had or knew, uh, formed part of their worship and their praise and their prayers on that journey. And because it has a sense of journey and trajectory and movement, it's really interesting for us as Christians to read and interpret these psalms with an eye on our own, if you like, journey of faith with God in Christ. Uh, the Christian faith was called the way in the beginning. The first Christians weren't called Christians to start with. The, the way of Jesus was referred to as the way because it was marked out by the way of the cross. And so something about journeying and pilgrimage is right at the heart of the Christian faith. And so a collection of psalms that are about journeying and pilgrimage and worship can be very helpful for us as we think about our own journey in God. So this week, having started with Psalm 121 last week, and of course we will remember the help, Lord, help prayer, I'm pretty sure that there were more people in here that prayed help, Lord, help during this week and saw a dramatic answer and didn't come and say anything. 
I know for one, my son did, but he's 11 and he's cool and he doesn't want to be public in front of everybody, and others did as well. Help, Lord, help. It remains a good prayer. And this week we're going to look at Psalm 123, and it begins in a similar kind of way with an individual speaking. So here's the first verse of Psalm 123. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. So, here we have an individual, I, to you, I lift up my eyes. And uh, the main difference here between Psalm 121 and Psalm 123 is that in this psalm, God is specifically described as the sovereign. In Psalm 121, God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. In this psalm, God is the one who reigns. He's enthroned over all things, enthroned above the heavens or in the heavens. If we take these two psalms together and these two openings, we get a very, very, very big picture of God indeed. This is what people call systematic theology, by the way. It's taking the script, the text of the Bible, and reading between the lines and piecing it together and looking at what the vision of God is that comes out. So here, what do we have? Well, we have a God who is the maker, the creator of all reality, of all reality. And then we have the one God who is the Lord, the King, the sovereign over all reality. That's how big God is. And if we were honest with ourselves, we would probably say, if you took our worship Sunday by Sunday, you'd never guess. (laughs) Other than the fact that the words that we sing maybe reflect that truth. God is bigger than our puny minds can understand. He is broader and higher and deeper. And all these words are just like mm, trying to stretch for uh, something uh, because God goes above and beyond all of them. But for our purposes, we get to rest in this morning. A great reality. God is the creator of all, and he is enthroned above all. God is the sole ruler and sole maker of everything. And that is very good news, and it's very exciting. Now, a little related aside. Have you ever felt, at some point, that your life is gradually, steadily becoming outsourced to technology. Ever had that feeling before, anyone? More and more and more my humanity, key functions of my humanity is being outsourced to technological things. Now, this comes home to me most when I have to use a sat-nav. And please don't get me wrong, there are times when I'm very, very grateful for a sat-nav. There are times when I'm in Mr. No Bearings McFick mode, that a sat-nav is a very, very useful device indeed. But it does make me think at times. We did quite well before there were sat-navs, only quite well, mind, but we did manage without sat-navs. I can remember as a child my dad with the AA roadmap out, the roadmap of Europe, pouring over routes and even this kind of fold-out. I could never understand those fold-out maps. You know, those OS ones, that they're about, they look easy, they're about that big. And then you start folding and folding and folding, and oh, there's another bit, and a fold, and oh, 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 and turn, no, turn it over. Oh, it's upside down, it's this huge thing. I can remember my dad looking at maps before we went on holidays. 
In fact, in 1983, when I was a lot younger than I am now, um, he pl plotted a route and drove us on holiday to, to the former Yugoslavia. Wow, it took a week to get there with various stops. And then we had a week in Yugoslavia, and then it was a week. I mean, it's unheard of with that sat now. People would be like, what, what, what? It'd be like that program when they release kind of F-list celebrities in the wild and you expect them to get back to wherever it is, you know? No, we made it. It was incredible. Technology can and does serve us, but it also can and perhaps often does make us a bit lazy and dumb us down slightly. We sort of switch off, don't we? When I use a sat-nav, I just listen to what it says and turn where it says turn. I don't think about where I am. I don't think about the geography around me. I don't think about what's, you know, where, whereabouts in the country I am. I'm just, you know, blithely following this voice. It could be taking me anywhere. It could be doing anything. Why am I saying all this? Well, because sometimes in our journey with God, we can switch off, zone out. Sometimes we can outsource our walk with God to other things. We can lean on stuff. We can lean on the mechanics of church. Sometimes that's okay, you know. Turning up is better than not. Coming weak, hungry, needy, yeah, that's, that's better than staying at home and watching telly. But we can outsource things, and sometimes we need to be reminded that everything, everything in our life with God, whether we frame that as a pilgrimage as is reflected in the Psalms or our walk with Jesus as Christians, that, that following Jesus' call to repent and believe and be baptized, however we frame it, nothing can be outsourced. Everything, everything must be lived. Now, last week I reminded you that it's actually God who ultimately takes responsibility for helping us and sustaining us in our walk with him. You could cite lots of scriptures at this point. In the book of Acts, says, in him we live and move and have our being. The book of Philippians, in the New Testament, Paul writes that God who began a good work in you, so he took the initiative, will see it through to completion. He'll finish the job. And then later on, Paul writes, well, it's God who is at work in you, the church, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, the energy to do God's will comes from God, and the power to carry that will out comes from God. God starts it, God carries it, God ends it, so that God is ultimately all in all. And that's really good, because we're not called to live a life where we hold it all together, keeping the plate spinning for God, or white-knuckling it somehow, doing the church stuff, oh my goodness, because if we don't do it, the cosmos will unravel, oh my word. That's not what we're called to. But neither are we called to just tune in, cop out, lay back. We're not preaching a hyper-grace where it doesn't matter at all what you do or how you act, what you think, what you believe, how you worship. We're not called to aimlessly drift through life in a religious daze. We're called to a life with God that is self-involving. God is the initiator and the sustainer and the completer, but we are involved in what God has begun 
and is sustaining and will complete. But what does that look like? That's the big question, isn't it? I think that's often the big question behind some of the major theological questions. Are we saved? One, uh, is it once saved, always saved? Or can you lose it somewhere? If you receive a prophetic word from somebody at a conference and, you, and it doesn't come true, does that mean that I've been disobedient and I've missed it? Oh my goodness, if some of the things that the Bible says don't actually happen to me, does that, like some of the good things, some of the promises, does that mean that I'm missing it somewhere along the way? No. We're called to be self-involved with God. What that looks like, I think, can be found in at least, I think, three key ways that we're going to explore now in Psalm 123. Did you like that? That was seamless, wasn't it? That was just lovely. You know, set it up, so it was about last week, read a bit of scripture, did a little bit of cultural stuff, technology, phones and everything, and then into the psalm. You're welcome. (laughs) Yes, that's right, I know, that's right. Now now you know how to preach a sermon. Pace around, yell a bit, whisper a little bit. Um, Okay. Three robust and helpful answers out of Psalm 123. Let's remind ourselves of the first verse. To you, I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Here's the first simple thing. It starts simple, but then it can get more complex. The first is just look up. Look up. Now, I don't mean, of course, that God is like an old guy in the sky, that God is sort of up there somewhere. But you care, you're mature, you know what I mean. Lift your eyes. The psalmist says, to you, O Lord, I lift up my eyes. To you who are enthroned in the heavens. What I mean is that our responsibility as Christians is to keep looking to God. Keep looking to God. If you want to live a life of discipleship that is self-involved, the first key thing is this. Keep looking to God. Or maybe we could frame it like this. Don't look down. (laughs) Don't look down. There are times and seasons in our lives where we need to pause and take stock of what is going on inside us, where we need to think about why we're reacting in a particular way. Maybe we need to reflect upon habits and patterns that are not helpful. Perhaps a brother or sister points something out. Ouch, that hurts. I need to give some thought and some time to that. But we're not called to get stuck there. The Christian life is not one of a long, miserable process of admitting how hopelessly and awfully wretched we are. God knows that you are hopefully and awfully wretched. And he loves you the same. He loves you with an everlasting love. He can't cease doing good to you. He delights in you with all of his heart. He took on flesh in the person of the eternal son and entered a world that he made in order to die for you. He loves you. and You were not doing anything good that made God go, oh, there's somebody I can work with. So we don't spend our whole lives looking in, oh dear, oh, woe is me, oh my goodness, if only I need to think this all through. No, we're called to keep our eyes on God, which is way, way, way more important than fiddling around with introspection and getting depressed about your performance, or or worse, perhaps, feeling smug about your performance. (laughs) I looked inside, and lo and behold, I'm doing quite well this week. 
Isn't that good? I noticed that person's struggling. Mm-hmm. I'm doing quite well this week. Nice, that's quite good. Mm, that's not really the call, is it? So look up. That's the beginning and the means and the end in a way. We keep looking up. We look to God. We don't look into ourselves. We look to the Lord. We see him. We see him, the creator, the one who is enthroned. We keep our eyes and our hearts tuned in to him. The second thing that the psalm encourages us to do, oops, not look up, that's, that was the first thing, is to assume a posture of patient humility toward God. <laughs> I now think, and I've seen this, sli- this slide after kind of preaching it now, I'm like, oh, I did say, you know, you're not a worm, but you might be a slug or a snail. Um, assume a posture of patient humility towards God. You are not above God. Correct? You are not equal to God. Correct? But sometimes, somewhere in our hearts, because we are sinful, something in our hearts wants to be and likes the thought that perhaps we are and flirts with the idea. And sometimes, actually, your, your flesh, your flesh kind of that is dead in sin, even though the spirit is life, the Bible says, because of righteousness, because of being in Christ, There's this fight on, and the flesh wants to be boss. The flesh does not want to submit to God. The flesh doesn't want to look up. The flesh wants to do what Chris said earlier. Fix it all. Be the man. Stiff up a lip. Stoic. Be the one who's in control. That's the fleshly urge in each and every one of us. The psalm says, As the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master... As the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy upon us. Wow. Assume the posture of a servant, of a patient servant. Um, Paul, just come here a minute. I'm going to act something out. So for today, for this moment, just for this moment, I, I am, you are my master, I'm your humble servant, okay? Just, just stay, <laughs> just stand, stand kind of relaxed, okay, now, think about this, where do I need to be in order to keep my eyes fixed on his hand? That's a bit awkward, isn't it? Where do I know, where, what posture do I need to have? Kneeling, let's have a look. Yeah, that's better. They're right in view. You've got long arms, but they are. They're right in view. Okay? I'm looking, and if he's standing up on a plinth, ooh, right? Yeah, yeah, they are, yeah. Okay? Thanks, Paul. Go sit down. It's not clapworthy at all. It's, thanks, thanks, you know. It wasn't like it wasn't a performance, was it? Um, we keep our, it's, it's about, I think it's about kneeling. Humility, being humble, putting yourself in a place where the eye, the hand of the Lord, if you like, because we're talking in this, this language, this visual language of looking to the hand, so we can see it. That means humbling yourself, kneeling down. Oh, but I like to pray when I just, I like walking and praying. Well, that's beautiful, fantastic. But sometimes actually bowing is good. 
I guess it is about a heart posture more than anything else, but sometimes what's in our hearts gets reflected through what we do with our bodies. We need to sometimes kneel, be humble, assume the posture of a servant. You should see our dog, Mustard, our ginger, rocket-fueled cockapoo. When a treat is at stake, sit down, and you and his eyes do not move. He is watching your hand. There's the tree. There, there's the tree. There's the tree. There's, there's the tree. There's the tree. There's the tree. His eyes are woof. Oh, I said woof. They're actually on it. He's watching. He's keeping his eyes. He is glued to the hand, okay? Because he knows that's where the good stuff comes from. Is that your posture in prayer? Are you a prayer like that? Or is prayer like, well, you know, as long as I get what I want, as long as I get what I need, I don't really need to kneel down. I'd like to see myself more on a level with God. Now, listen here, God, let me give you some advice. I think what you should really do in this situation is, but, 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 but. That's not really very humble. Maybe it's you think you're over God. Maybe in your heart, God is like some feckless employee who no matter how many times you tell him what he should do, he just doesn't do it. And so you are like A1 ticked off at God because he doesn't do what you want as if he should, brothers and sisters. You ain't God. You're not over him. You're not even equal to him. Our position before God is to be that of humble servants. Oh, but Jesus says that our identity is sons. Yes, but Jesus also says, when you've done the will of God, just say we are nothing but unworthy servants. Hmm. So we are sons who are like Jesus, sons who kneel down before God, who humble themselves in the presence of God who give themselves to pain when it's the will of God, who don't grumble and complain, who don't insist upon their own way, but who willingly submit to the purposes of God in their lives. That's a lot different to believing our own press as a race, as a, as a, a human race. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Nice prose, mate, but no, you ain't. Never have been, never will be, never going to be. Immanuel Kant was wrong. It is not courage to make your own moral judgments about things. It's rebellion and sin because God has revealed God's self and your job as a human being is to obey him and to worship him and to please him, to humble yourself before him and say, you are God. I lift my eyes to you enthroned, in the heavens, I bow down, I look to your hand as a humble servant. I assume this posture in my life. Now, it's worth paying attention to the precise words always, but here it is until he has mercy upon us. Notice, until he has mercy upon us. 
There's an expectation in the psalm. I'm going to keep waiting for you, God. I'm not going to get distracted. If it takes 10 minutes, 10 days, 10 weeks, 10 years, I'm not going to dial out, cop out, drift, get angry, advise you, try and be over you, forget about you. I'm going to keep looking to you until you have mercy upon me. You should just take this as a, as a, a gentle and generous warning that adopting a posture of humility in prayer before God is not the key to getting your every wish granted by God. God hasn't answered my prayers. Well, what do you mean? Well, it hasn't happened. Well, he has answered your prayers. He said no, because that's as much an answer to prayer as yes, isn't it? And everything in between. We look to him until he has mercy upon us. We don't advise him. We don't dictate to him. We wait. We assume a posture of patient humility before God. Until he has mercy upon us. Not until things change. Not until things get better. Not until I can figure out what I must do. No, until he has mercy upon us. That, friends, is a sea shift in attitude. Until things get better puts my life and my requirements somewhat at the center. Until he has mercy upon us means everything is about God. Everything. My life, my struggles, or, or rather two different bits. There's my life that's about me life, and then there's my life that's about God life. The life that's about me life can be, here I am on my knees, please, I, I need everything to change. The life that's about God life, oh, please have mercy. But there's only one, and it's the until he has mercy what we all need for every challenge and trial, for every bit of our lives, what we all depend upon. Pete's already mentioned it in typical Pete Roderick form, citing something from my sermon, before my sermon. Um, we're dependent. We're dependent upon him. We depend on him. We're like hung out completely until he has mercy upon us. We wait. We don't try and fix it all, change the situation ourselves, we wait upon him. In a moment, we're going to find out something of what the psalmist thinks, at least, is why they need mercy. But just note for the time being, as we, before we move into that, that there is no sense in which the psalmist is trying to control the outcome of the prayer. You, just, you can't do that, can you? There's no way that we can control the outcome of things in our lives or in anything else because we pray, or somehow our prayers control God. It's very much by the mercy of God when we pray, whether it's help, Lord, help, or if it's one of prayer, Paul's like amazing prayers in one of his letters, or if it's some other psalm or whatever else it might be, 
our prayers bring us deeper into what God is already doing. I think it's a mistake to imagine that by praying somehow we can twist, shape, control, direct the sovereign will. By the grace of God, our prayers bring us in on what God is doing. Wonderful. I want to be in on what God's doing. Do you? Anybody else? Thank you, Michaela. Hallelujah. One person put their hand up. Yeah, right. Well, it's scary to be in on what God's doing. It's unpredictable, isn't it? You just, you don't know. We like to be in control. I can't believe that preacher on Sunday said we're not in control. can't believe he slated Kant. And what, what? Doesn't he know that we are? It's the 21st century. Yeah, he does. And he's got the Bible in one hand and a smartphone in the other. He knows what people are like. (laughs) He knows what he's like. Let's look at how, or let's look at the ways in which maybe the psalm thinks they need mercy. Now, there's a hinge here. Mercy is the point where this psalm kind of hinges. It moves from one thing to another. See if you spot it. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. It's suddenly become a prayer. Up until now, it's been exaltation. I lift up my eyes to you. We assume a posture of a servant. I'm going to wait for you. But now it's, have mercy, God. Have mercy. The psalmist doesn't just jog in. Hey, have mercy, Lord. Thank you. And then he's off. The psalmist wrestles and twists and fights with his life and looks up and bows down and gets God big in his sights and then says, have mercy. He's ordered his steps right when it comes to prayer and faith and God. He's doing it in the right way. He's not starting with me and my stuff. He starts with God and his glory and he humbles himself and then he prays, have mercy mercy upon us. Beautiful. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than its fill of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. One of the tricky things in the Psalms is that it's virtually impossible to directly link them, most of them, almost all of them probably, with a specific event from Israel's life, something that you could find in one of the Old Testament narratives, say, that you could say, oh, well, that psalm is about that, and that psalm is when that happened, and that psalm is when that happened. There's some, but there's not many. That's probably good news, because what it does is it opens up for us a whole world of being able to place ourselves into the world of the psalm, And think about who the proud might be or those who are at ease and what scorn and contempt might look like. We can't say who is in the psalmist's mind. It could be enemies who are full of contempt for Israel and their God. It could actually be other Israelites who are just apathetic and hold the enthusiastic, energetic ones in contempt. (laughs) Look at them on this stupid road trip to Jerusalem. Oh my goodness. Don't they know they should be getting on with the practical jobs of life? Don't they know you're going up to worship God? Pah, 
What a load of bananas that is. Crumbs, you know. Shouldn't they be thinking about the latest alliance with Assyria? Shouldn't they be thinking about, has Hezekiah allowed anybody in from Babylon to see the treasures of his house? Those are the political things of our day. Those are the things that really matter the most. Puh, ridiculous religious people. Maybe. Don't know. We're probably surrounded like Surrounded by people like that, people who think that Christians are weak, pathetic, contemptuous towards belief, towards God. Maybe you're even influenced by that. Maybe you struggle to really give yourself to God in worship and faith and praise because somewhere in you, you just you don't want to look like a, an idiot before people who might be sophisticated in the world's eyes. There's nothing really much sophisticated about falling on your face and saying, God, you are Lord and I'm not. I'm going to wait patiently for your mercy. If you want sophistication, there's other better religions for that. Nothing sophisticated about a crucified Jew, is there? Blood spattered, thorn crowned, scourged and whipped. That's your savior. That's your king. Is that sophisticated? You can say sophisticated stuff about it, but the actual thing itself is not sophisticated at all. It's brutal and bloody, weak, humiliation. And there are people who want the church to be in that place, who think the church is in that place. In some ways, the church is in that place and has to learn to say, God, this is the way. This is the way. This is the way of the kingdom. I submit to you. Maybe that's it. Have mercy on us, Lord. We know this is what you've called us to, but it's really hard, really painful. Being a believer in 21st century, middle-class, affluent York is really tough because people don't care and people think that it's foolish. God, I don't know what to do. I want to be a worshipper. I want to give myself, but I feel so exposed on a Sunday when like, I want to give myself a worship, but there's people just looking around and looking at me, and I feel like I can't. I feel like somehow I'm kind of just kept in check. Help me, God. Have mercy on me, God. So we don't know who these people are. It might be all kinds of things in your life. There's something somewhere where you are like, ah, enough. I've just, I've just had enough. And I love that this is what the psalm says. We have had enough of this. So let me ask you, what is it in your life that you've had more than enough of right now? What is it at the moment where you just think, my soul has had its absolute fill of this? It could be something related to other people. It could be something different. It could be something deeply personal and hidden and painful. It could be something really, yeah, just like that, deep, unutterable almost. You know, I can't tell you how to fix it. I wish sometimes that I had a pastoral magic wand where when somebody called and told me about some pain or some tragedy or trauma, I could go, it's all right, it's okay. <laughs> Leviano Sombojdu or something in Harry Potter-esque kind of terms. You shall not pass. That's better. I, I have no magic wand. I wish sometimes there was a magic prayer. Okay, this one we really need the prayer. You know, and it's in a box. 
here it is. <laughs> We're going to unfold it. We get ready and pray the prayer, and boom, and it's all fixed. You know, or that there was a verse. You know, the, you know that verse, don't you, Mim? You've been a Christian a long time. You don't know the verse. That's right, there isn't a verse. If there was the verse we could use, we wheel it out, we pray the verse, we read the verse. Fixed, done. Hallelujah. Wouldn't that be brilliant? Probably not, actually. You'd all get dependent on me. It's no good. I can't fix it. The psalm has no intention of telling you how to fix it. I want you to be very cautious and careful of treating the Bible like a grab bag of answers to difficult problems. It doesn't have any interest a lot of the time in solving your problems. Its interest is to grab you by the collar and drag you into the world of God, into a strange new world where this is what it looks like when God is king and worshipped and glorified. It's into this world, the world created by the one God, the, one, the world being redeemed by the one God. Scripture brings you into that and rearranges all your perspectives and your priorities and everything. It's not interested in telling you how to get a quick fix to this week's issue. The psalmist encourages you to look up and not look down, to know afresh where God is and to know afresh what God is for you there. The psalm urges patient humility in the face of life's issues and resisting the urge to put ourselves over or equal to God. The psalm recognizes that we overwhelmingly need the mercy of God, but it doesn't dictate to us what that must look like or when it happens. The psalm says all these things and then it just stops. <laughs> this one's annoying. It's like, well, look, look, just look again at how it stops. It's crazy. You're like, hang on, wait a minute. Surely isn't there like another bit? You know, our soul has had more than its fill of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. And then you want next stanza to be, and so God thundered from heaven, and smoke and fire came from his nostrils. The earth shook, the cedars of Lebanon quivered, and my enemies ran with fear, and the Lord alone was exalted in that day. But no, it just stops. But that's the point, isn't it? We pray, we, we look up, we bow down, we pray for mercy, and we wait. The punchline isn't obvious, and the punchline could be different in everybody's different circumstances. The psalm isn't fixing things for us. It's realigning how we should best approach our prayers Look up, bow down, wait patiently, ask for mercy. Let's close our eyes for a moment. Living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternal in the heavens, sole creator, sole ruler, both now and always, we confess that you are God and that we are not. We repent of the places where we have exalted ourselves to be 
at least equal with you in our attitudes, if not over you in the things that we've expected of you. We say you are God. We depend upon you. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. Lord, if we won't humble ourselves, then humble us for the sake of your name. If we won't depend on you, make us depend upon you for the sake of your name. If we won't do those hard things, then Lord, we really do need mercy. I pray for each one this week who's had enough, whether it's persecution or mockery or just life stuff. We can't control our circumstances, Father. Have mercy. May we see and discern whether the circumstances are actually sent from you to train us in eternal joy. Save us from pastoring people to a place of thinking that maybe there's a magic prayer. Lord, we know there isn't one. Teach us to say we're your sons and your children, but we're your humble servants too. And work in us what is pleasing to you and what is honoring and ple- what is good for us, but what is honoring and pleasing to you, we pray. In the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.